Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, good morning once again. I'm so thankful for the opportunity uh, to be your pastor and to share with you from God's Word week in and week out. And the last couple weeks, I have been out away from the pulpit and trying to, to get some rest and get ready for the Advent season. And the Lord has, has blessed me in that. And so we're going to dive in together today into Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. We'll consider verse 14 and 15. Uh, as you turn there, uh, I forgot to say something in, in the time of our, our offering. Every gift that you give through the budget over the next month, between December 1st and December 31st, uh, is being matched up to the first $100,000 given so that we can get off to a good start with the Treasure Jesus initiative. So if you're wondering if it's a good time to be a generous giver at North Roanoke, it's a great time because uh, every dollar becomes $2 uh, as you give in this month. So we praise God for that opportunity. So by now you're in Genesis 3, and you are wondering what in the world we are doing uh, in Genesis because it's Christmas time. Four weeks from today, it'll be Christmas morning, and uh, we won't have our 3D groups that day at 9.15. We will worship, however, right here at 10.30, Kids included, Um, we will have preschool and nursery, but for the kindergartners and up, we'll be right here together, and you're you're like, man, I'm going to have to open some gifts and then dart over to worship in my PJs. Okay, whatever, whatever you need to be here in, Uh, I'm going to prepare a sermon for Christmas Sunday, so I would love it if you could be here uh, with us. And as we celebrate and anticipate celebrating Jesus' birth, we are in what we call the season, season of Advent. It's, it's a time when we rejoice that God's Son and King, who's been foreshadowed for centuries before His arrival, has now come. And over the years, I've discovered something about Jesus and, and knowing Jesus and, and people and knowing Jesus, and it's this. When people connect the dots between God's promises in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus, people grow in their knowledge and love for Jesus. And this is important because John 17 tells us that this is salvation, to know God and the Son that He has sent. So for this year's Christmas series, this year's Advent series, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to the beginning to see how the Jesus born of the Virgin Mary is the Son that Genesis teaches us to seek. Now, if Christmas and Genesis don't immediately go together in your mind, that's totally understandable, right? Because when we think of Genesis, so often we think of the book that features the all-powerful, uncreated, self-existent, eternal God who who made everything. And, And it is that book, but it doesn't end there. Adam and Eve, as you recall, fall. They fall into sin. And thereafter, all naturally conceived humanity falls with them. And they and, and we, with Adam and Eve, believed the serpent's lie. 
We doubted the goodness of God. We rebelled against our maker by eating the fruit and suffering the consequences of rebelling against the very God that we were made to know and enjoy and worship. And those consequences were what? Exile from the garden and the the tree of life. Pain in childbirth, difficulty in marriage, grueling work in order to have our daily bread. Yet, Adam and Eve, nevertheless, they have children. Have you ever thought about that? Like, if this is going to be our existence, why don't we just not have kids? And yet, they have children, and and here we are. Why? Why? Why did they perpetuate humanity. Here's why. Because in the, in the midst of announcing severe consequences for sin, the Lord in Genesis 3 also announces good news. The serpent will not ultimately win. Eventually, there will be a seed of woman, an offspring or a descendant of woman, who we learn later in Genesis will be a son who will be the destroyer of Satan. He, he will be harmed in the process, but he will win. He will deliver a fatal blow to the serpent's head. So right in the midst of the consequences of sin, God gives Adam and Eve the, the first hearing of the gospel, the promise that a son who will conquer the enemy will come. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord from Genesis three fourteen and 15? This is after Adam and Eve have fallen, and this is what God says to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, tempting Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Would you pray with me? God, help us uh, in the moments to come to adore Jesus, to know him more, to appreciate him more, to worship him in spirit and truth as a result of seeing who he would be in light of the promises we find in Genesis 3. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The first thing I want you to see in this text this morning is that the serpent is no mere snake, right? The serpent is the devil and Satan. To to understand these verses, we have to read them in their larger biblical context. It's not just a snake. This is a, a crafty being. It speaks. It seems to know Eve's vulnerabilities better than she knows them herself. The goal of its speech is to oppose the Lord and lead his special creation, human beings, astray and thwart God's plan to glorify his son with a world filled with people who worship him. When Eve sees, back in verse 6 of chapter 3, that the tree is good for food and pleasing to her eyes and desires insight to be like God, she's taken out by what I like to call the trifecta of temptations. 1 John 2, 16 tells us these temptations are the, the lust of the flesh. We, we want to feel something 
These are the lusts of the eyes. We want to see something and the, the pride of life. We, we want to be somebody, even if that means we would ignore and rebel against our God. And, and Adam's there all along, right? Like she eats and then she turns and, and Adam eats. She's not like, it's not like she has to go track Adam down. Adam could have been leading his family and been like, you know, I really don't think you should eat that. But instead, he eats it as well. And according to Romans chapter 5, Humanity has been infected with Adam's sin ever since. So to understand the serpent, we need to understand that this is Satan. And to understand that this is Satan, it helps to understand that the Garden of Eden is presented to us like a garden temple. The language that's used to describe the garden will reappear when we read about the tabernacle, and it will reappear again when we read about the temple. In other words, this is a, a place that before the fall, we would expect that Adam and Eve would be encountering the unseen realm of God, His heavenly presence. So Adam and Eve, in, in some way, would, would be walking with God in the cool of the day, we read, and they would be in interacting in some way with supernatural beings of the Lord's creation. In other words, Eve is not listening to a mere snake. She's listening to the chief of demons, to Beelzebub, the, the devil. The devil was on a mission to destroy people. He falls and he can't eclipse the Son of God, and so he figures he'll take out the people of God so that they can't worship the Son of God. If he can't get Jesus, then, he'll swart, then he will thwart Jesus' plan. He is aiming to derail any hope for a world filled with worshipers who delight in God's Son by, by tempting us. You say, well, that's crazy talk. All it says is a snake. Well, if we had any doubt that this serpent was more than a snake, all that doubt is removed in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, which says this, The ancient serpent is the devil and Satan. He is a slanderer and an accuser. Beale says this in his commentary on Revelation. He slanders God by questioning his motives in giving his command not to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he deceives Adam and Eve by suggesting that their disobedience is somehow going to have a positive result. Oh, God was just kidding. He didn't really mean that it wouldn't go well for you. Go ahead and have a taste. So this jealous, lying, deceiving, murderous, sinning enemy of God, the father of lies and the evil one, aims to take out God's image bearers on earth in the very garden that God made to commune with them in a special relationship. Went right into the garden, right to the heart of the communion between God and people and tried to take out God's plan to glorify his son, but God would not let the serpent win. God would not deny, allow Satan to deny his son a world filled with worshipers covering the globe. And the second thing I want you to see in verse 14 is the depth of Satan's decline and the promise of his defeat. The, the depth of Satan's decline and the promise of his defeat. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent is described to us as crafty. But in verse 14, he's described as cursed. 
And it's this curse, Sailhammer tells us, that distinguishes the serpent above all the livestock and the wild animals. In the immediate context, this means that Satan will be like snakes, lower than the cattle and the beasts of the field, going on his belly and eating dust are pictures of Satan's eventual defeat. As an angelic being, the serpent would have known a, a glorious existence before leading the rebellion against God and tempting Eve, but now he bears a divine curse, rendering him the lowest being in all creation. And this curse, do you see it? It's for all the life of the serpent. Not just one snake or not just snakes generally crawling around on their belly. We sense something far more significant is happening than just the curse of one snake, right? And this is confirmed in Isaiah 62, 25. When the prophet tells us that even when peace and harmony are restored to creation, even when the new heavens and the new earth have come, the serpent will continue in his role as the defeated enemy of God, even then dust will still be the serpent's food. So we've seen two things so far. First, God has an enemy who rebelled against his rule and sought to derail his plan by taking out people. And second, God's not going to let his victory stand. His defeat is assured. Satan's defeat is assured. But in the first half of verse 15, we learn that Satan will fiercely resist his fate by attacking the woman and her seed, her offspring, her descendants. But the promised descendant or seed will win a decisive victory. Satan's going to resist his destiny, but God will win, and he will win through a son. Does that make sense? So we come to the second half of verse 15 we, we read that Satan's demise will come when? When his head is bruised or bitten or crushed. It's, it's not a frequently used word in Hebrew. But his head will be taken out by the woman's seed. But first, there will be hostility or enmity or a blood feud between the serpent and the woman. And between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. Seed. In other words, Satan will try to take out women from having this seed, and if he can't succeed in doing that, he will try to take out women's sons. Clearly, we are not talking about a typical snake, are we? A snake with seed. A snake that has an interest in taking out the offspring of women. Salehammer writes this, the snake is representative of something else. It is the snake and, his, and what his seed represent that lies at the center of the author's focus. We understand that the seed of woman refers to her offspring, right? Women have children, that's their offspring. But, but what in the world is the seed of the serpent? Moses is referring, beloved, to people who follow Satan down the path of rejecting Jesus and going to war against him. Rejecting the promised Son of God and warring against him. These are, are people influenced by the serpent and his plan to counter God's Son. So Satan and those influenced by Satan, his, his seed will fight against Satan's defeat by going to war against women and their offspring. 
And if we continue to read Genesis, as we will in the weeks to come, we see that the seed of woman is singular for a reason. At any point in the Bible, there's one seed. There's one son of promise. There's one son through whom the promises of God can come. The Lord will send a particular son and a particular family line in a particular way. 1 John 3, 8 tells us why. To destroy the works of the devil. Did you know Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil? And that's good news. He has come to deliver fallen sinners from death and into everlasting life. And Satan will fight God's plan tooth and nail every step of the way. But the promise of verse 15 is that the seed of woman, though he is somehow hurt in the process, he will bruise his heel or his heel will be bitten or crushed. In the crushing of his heel, the serpent's head will be conquered. Though sin and death entered the world when Eve listened to the serpent, listen to this, forgiveness and restoration and life everlasting would come through the woman's seed. God would get a world filled with worshipers adoring His Son, worshiping no longer just as creator and sustainer of life as Adam and Eve knew Him, but also as a merciful, sin-forgiving, death-defeating, Satan-conquering, life-restoring Savior. Satan thought he was going to conquer Jesus, he was going to conquer God's plan, but all he ends up doing is amplifying the worship of Jesus from people who deserve hell and the grave, but instead, because Christ comes and conquers the enemy, they are delivered into His worship and praise, not as just His Creator, but as Redeemer forevermore. Satan's plan would not just be reversed. It would also amplify our appreciation for Jesus and all the earth for all eternity. So despite Satan's best attempts to thwart God's plan, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is this. There's going to be fierce hostility, but a seed of woman will overcome. He will come, and he will overcome. Satan duped the woman, but the woman would give birth to a seed who would defeat him. So if Genesis 3 is at the beginning of the book of beginnings, we should expect that we would find some examples of this along the way in the Old Testament of this hostility between the seed of Satan and the seed of woman. Does that make sense? So God says there's going to be a battle. It's going to take a long time, but eventually there's going to be a seed who's going to conquer the devil. All right? So do we see this in the Old Testament? I mean, that would be an important question to ask. Do we actually see this fulfilled in the Old Testament? And I'll submit to you that we do. Do you remember when we get to Exodus? By the time we get there, we know the seed is going to come from a descendant of Abraham. And things are going well in Egypt until there's a new Pharaoh who decides to treat the Hebrews severely as slaves and kill their newborn sons and wipe them out. But his plan doesn't go too well, right? God raises up Moses. He's born and rescued from the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. And God uses Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And listen to how the psalmist describes the salvation of the Israelites. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Huh. 
God protected and preserved the line from which his seed would come as he brought them through the Red Sea. And the psalmist, reflecting on that, sees echoes of Genesis 3.15. He understands that God is in the process of crushing the head of the serpent so that his son might come. In Numbers, you remember when Balak tries to curse the Israelites four times in Numbers? The king of Moab fears the Israelites, so he hires Balak. He's like, curse these people. And Balak tries to curse the people. Four times he tries to curse them, and he can't curse them. And in Numbers 24, 17, do you remember what he says? I I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise out of Israel. And do you remember what he says next? It shall crush the forehead of Moab. It's the promise of Genesis 3.15 restated. The bright and morning star will come. He will come from Jacob and from Judah. He's already living and active behind the scenes. He is God the Son. He's coming and He will win. In Joshua chapter 10, when God's people are opposed by an alliance of kings, the Lord gives Israelites a victory over five kings who are in an alliance against them. And what does Joshua do? He summons all the men of Israel and says to the chiefs of the men of war who went with him to war, come near and listen to what he says, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And Joshua said to them, don't be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. The heads of the serpent's seed are not faring very well, are they? Judges chapter 4. You remember Sisera? He's hunting down the people of God. And he's kicking backside and taking names. Can the pastor say that? He's kicking backside and taking names, and he, he, he needs a little rest, and he runs into a tent. And then Jael, a Gentile woman, who he says, hey, I'm just going to go here and take a little rest. Just, you know, look out for me. He goes in to take a nap, and Jael's like, sure, no problem. And as soon as he falls asleep, she grabs a tent peg and a hammer. And what does she do? She drives the stake down through the skull of Sisera as he sleeps. The head's of the serpent's seed are not faring very well. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, young David, shepherd boy, faces Goliath. And in your English translations, it might say that he's wearing a coat of mail, but literally the word coat of mail is coat of scales in the Hebrew. In other words, David is presented as being a serpent. But he's no match for David, the seed of woman. The line from whom our Savior would come. Saul tries to give David. Do you remember what he tries to do to David? He's like, David, here's my own coat of mail. Here's my own scaly armor. And David's like, I don't need your scaly armor. Because the enemy is not conquered with human weapons. He's conquered by complete reliance upon the Lord. And the son of promise in the text, in complete obedience and reliance upon the Lord, goes out to the battlefield and he hurls that stone deep into the skull of Goliath's forehead, and then he decapitates him. The serpent's head and the seed of the serpent will be crushed. We could provide more examples in the Old Testament, could we not? You remember Haman and Esther? 
Haman builds the gallows. He's going to take out Mordecai, the Jew, who has a plan to save the Jews so that the promised seed could come. And he's, I'm going to take out those Jews. I'm going to take out the seed. And then, you remember how the book ends? Haman ends up hanging from the very gallows that he erected to take out God's people. So the the Bible begins in Genesis 3, and it opens in the conclusion of the very first story. God made a great world. He prepared a great place for people to know and enjoy and worship God. But the serpent slithered in and they sinned. And it opens with a question, how will God remedy this and who is the seed of woman? Who is this seed? And already the scripture is teaching us to know that the coming seed born of woman is, as Chad Bird writes, he is a victorious head crusher. Merry Christmas. He wrote an article called, Where's the Sunday School Picture of Jesus Crushing Skulls? Because that's what he's come to do. And here's some good news. The ultimate serpent head crusher came at Christmas. The crushing of the serpent's head is assured. And when Christmas comes, the final act is underway. Because the last point of this message is this. At Christmas, Jesus, God's promised seed, came to face the serpent head on and crush his head once for all. Church, despite Satan's best efforts... Through Pharaoh, Goliath, Saul, Sisera, Haman, and others, he was failing. He could not get the job done through his emissaries. He couldn't get the job done through his seed. So when Satan arrives, the serpent attacks directly. When Jesus is conceived in Mary of the Holy Spirit, Joseph, what does he want to do? He wants to put her away. He wants to put her away discreetly, but like, I don't want to have any part of this. But then an angel comes and overrides and says, Listen, Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, meaning salvation. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Satan will not win. Later, after Jesus is born and the wise men come to worship, Herod, acting just like, just like when the Israelites were captive, to the Egyptian centuries before, what does he ask them to do? He says, come back and tell me where Jesus is because I want to worship him, but really he wants to kill him. And they don't come back because God warns them in a dream and an angel tells Joseph about Herod's plan to kill all the boys around Bethlehem. And so Jesus and his family go to Egypt and Jesus isn't harmed. Later, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Satan tempts him in the wilderness of Judea. Do you remember this? The Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted. And for 40 days, he does not eat, he does not drink, and Satan tempts him. And in the depth of human existence, in the hardest existence there is, with great hunger, when Satan tempts him, Jesus did not cave. Think about that. We caved in the garden. We had everything we needed. We had fruit all around us. We had everything we could imagine. And yet we fell when the serpent slithered into the garden. But Jesus goes into the wilderness where there's nothing and he has nothing to eat. And Satan tempts him and he still conquers the serpent. Peter, when he's asked who Jesus is, he identifies him as the Messiah. 
And he's right. But then Jesus says, and I must go to the cross. I must die for sin. And Peter says, God forbid. And Jesus says to Peter, do you remember? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus would not be denied the path of the cross, the path of bruising to crush the serpent, and the serpent never saw it coming. At the Last Supper, Satan entered Judas, you remember, John 13, 27, and led him to portray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And I, I love how Bird summarizes the climax of the story of the seed of woman and the serpent. What does he write? Finally, using corrupt religious leaders and godless Romans, the serpent sank his fangs into the heel of the Messiah shooting his hellish venom of death deep into the veins of the crucified commander of the armies of the Lord. Ah, but fool that he was. The serpent signed his own death certificate with venomous ink. For as he struck the Lord's heel, that heel also struck him. Down, down, hard it fell, like a tent peg driven by hammer blows, like a stone slung from a sling. Down came the Lord's heel with all the muscle of divine love behind it, flattening the head that first hissed its lies in Eden. Loved ones in Christ, victory is secured, and it is sure. The victory over Jesus and Satan and his seed is signaled by Mary when she says, He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Victory is secured how? In the resurrection of the Son, Satan didn't win. Jesus did. He bore our sin and conquered the grave, lifting us up and denying Satan his victory forevermore. So for those who have life in Jesus, we know that Satan will oppose us, but the defanged serpent is all bark and no bite for those who abide in Christ. In Jesus, the serpent-crushing seed, we are more than conquerors, Romans 8.37. In Jesus, we can resist the devil and he must flee, James 4.7, because his lies just don't stick like they used to. We know God is good. We know God does not withhold the good from us because he gave us his only son. In Jesus, we can stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.10, and we can tell a lost and dying world that Satan is a liar, he's a deceiver, and he's a murderer, but he is conquered in Christ. God's son would not be denied a world filled with worshipers. So he came down at Christmas to lift us up from death so that we might worship and adore him so that he might thwart Satan's schemes at the same time. And what an incredible king we serve. Satan, created greater than mankind, tried to exalt himself above God and God cursed him to an existence beneath the animals. But Jesus, creator of mankind, humbled himself by becoming a man to die for sins, and God exalted him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Satan tried to grasp at deity and then come to destroy us when he failed. But what did Jesus do? 
He didn't cling to his own deity and the privileges of deity, but came to rescue us at Christmas when we failed. Satan lured us into sin to destroy us and deny Jesus the glory that he is due, but Satan became sin to deliver us and give us a share in his glory that we could never deserve. Satan mocked and accused and betrayed and tempted and killed Jesus. The heel of Jesus was bruised, but he defanged and dethroned that scaly dragon in the process. So this Christmas, as we consider the manger church, we are right to see beauty. We are right to hear the cries of a newborn baby, to wonder at the miracle of God with us, but we should not be duped by the tranquility of Christmas. Bird says this, Christ is the crusher of skulls. He's the warrior God that you want on your side in the fight. He's no sweet, sappy, romanticized, and Disney-fied cartoonish Jesus. He is ferocious. He's free. He's untamed. And he's heaven-bent on not leaving the battlefield until the war is won. Beloved, yeah, that's good news. (laughs) That's good news. I promise I'm almost done. But the profound nature of the redemption we have in Christ is, is worthy of, these, of this exaltation. My desire is that we would adore the Son this morning. Those beautiful baby feet that came at Christmas came to finish the serpent for good. No sooner... Had the birthing blood been wiped from Jesus' feet, then Satan went to work to seek his destruction. Eventually, Satan would take matters into his own hands. He would enter Judas directly, and those precious feet of Jesus would bear the spikes of the cross. For two nights, it seemed that Satan had won. But oh, on the third day, the feet that had been formed in Mary, walked out of the tomb in obedience to the Father. The feet that walked to Golgotha's hill walked out of that tomb. Christmas is about far more than baby coos and cuddles. It is about war. The Son of God came and He became the seed of woman to humble the serpent and save forever all who run to Him. So this morning, if you know Jesus, rejoice in Jesus, rest in Jesus, rely on Jesus. And if you don't know this serpent-crushing seed, then destroy the enemy by trusting in Him today. Run to Jesus, who, as Hebrews 2 tells us, through His death, came that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You don't have to live in fear of death because Satan is conquered by the seed. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we give you praise for Christmas. We give you praise that the war we could not win has been won by our King. And God, we ask that you would lift our hearts this Advent season to be robust worshipers of the one who ran the race in our place. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org. 
or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.